Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we learn the significance of Christ's sacrifice and how that alone was enough to cover the sins of all who believe. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Justified, Part 4. Romans 3, 21 to 28. Uh, now, Lord willing, next Sunday will be the day we, we finish up this section. So you've got a, uh, an outline on your bulletin there that we've been working our way through. Today's primarily, we're going to be looking at point number eight. Romans 3, 21 to 28. Let's read this together and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Are you reading with me in verse 21? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Please bow with me and let's ask for God's help. God in heaven, Lord, all of the cosmos belongs to you. Every soul in one way or the other is going to bow their knee to you and glorify your name. God, we long to be among those who glorify you by loving you. You are going to get glory from those who resist you. But oh God, we want the delight, the joy, the blessing of knowing you. Father, you reveal yourself to us in your word, but God, you have told us that the greatest display of who you are, your character, the greatness of your majesty and excellence and all that is amazing about you is shown to us in the work you've done in Christ. Please, God, I pray, show us more of yourself in seeing the gospel this morning. And I just want to pray, God, that for every soul, wherever wherever each individual is. Father, whatever is needed, please show it, God, for your sons and daughters, those who are in Christ, who have turned, who are right with you, have been saved, been justified. God, we beg, Lord, show us the the hundreds of effects, the the applications, the ramifications that come out of that, that you have given us eternal life and the hope of what is to come, but, but even more than that, you've brought us to yourself. And I pray, God, that you fill us with confidence and joy, expectation. Lord, show us what you've done. But God, any in the room that are not right with you, I ask, God, that any that are deluded, who think that they're fine when the reality is they're separated, God, show them the truth of where they stand and bring them to salvation. Father, help me to preach and teach. Help me not to 
say anything that would be unhelpful in any form or fashion, but only what's helpful. And God, all of us, God, we bow to you. Help us, O oh Lord, to receive your word and worship in the, in the hearing and in the, the sweating and wrestling with the truths to understand them. I pray there'll be no passive listeners, O oh God, but active listeners engaged and leaned in, O oh God, to see your truths. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that respond, O oh God. Please bless this time. We ask this through the strong, saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. William Cooper was a man who wrote some of the hymns that we sing and love, uh, such as, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Same guy who wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. Cooper was a man who, in his early years, he believed, but had not had not come to embrace the gospel and to find peace in it. He, he believed, but there's a thought that got stuck in his head. As, as you study through history, some of the great Christians that we look to as heroes, one of the things you'll find is, is some of them had like these, these weird thoughts that got in their head and it caused this, in, this great stumbling block to them. Um, Thoughts that sometimes were kind of like, well, why didn't they just like read, you know, John 3 or Ephesians 2? Like it, it seems really obvious to us, but part of the point is you and I have some stuff in our life and errors as well that others think would be easy to remedy, becomes blind to us. And some of these great Christians through history got some stuff stuck in their head and it took them a while to get it out. Jonathan Edwards, John Bunyan, you go through the list. It's there often, but here's, here's what got stuck in William Cooper's head. He came to believe that he had been chosen by God to be damned. That God had predestined him to be sentenced to hell. And what's wild is he believed the Bible. He believed it was true. He believed the facts of the gospel. He believed all of these tenets of solid theology, when I say be believed, he, he mentally recognized them, acknowledged them, but he had this idea stuck in his head that it can't save me. I'm going to hell and there's nothing that I can do about it. The guilt and the misery of that condition drove him to madness. And I'm not exaggerating by that. He was committed to an insane asylum. But what's wild is it wasn't that he had some physiological condition, no chemical imbalance or, or anything like this. It was the, the, the insanity of the hopelessness, the guilt as he looked to his future and believed in a hell to come, but believed that he was going there and that there was nothing that could happen. Drove him to madness. Which by the way, those who reject Christ, I don't know how this isn't where you live every single day. Cooper just demonstrates the reality of those who reject Christ, that this is the end. But while he was in this in asylum, the day came when he sat down on a bench and someone had left behind a Bible. He was familiar with the Bible, but that day he opened it up and he happened to open up to Romans 3 and verses 25 and 26. And in that moment, God broke, broke 
the thoughts that had, that had chained him into the misery and madness he had been in. And there were some truths that began to sing into his soul. And it was the truth of verses 25 and 26. This right here, the death of Jesus is completely sufficient to satisfy the anger of God. God is the just and justifier. We don't save ourselves. It wasn't up to William Cooper to save himself. God is the one that from start to finish does the work and the sacrifice of Jesus is completely sufficient. When, when we say that statement, that his sacrifice is sufficient, what we mean is it's enough. It's adequate. It worked. It accomplished something. It's not that Jesus' death gets you started. It's not that Jesus' death helps you. No, the sacrifice of Christ accomplished what was needed. The wrath of God has been satisfied for those who are in Christ. All of that swept over him, overjoyed. Can you imagine being delivered out of torment in a moment? And he believed and embraced the gospel and left the asylum never to return. He went on to live a life that has struggles. You can read biographies on him and such. Went on, and, and by the way, we benefit from his struggles as he has written hymns that have been a blessing. But the fruit of those hymns came from the wrestling he had with understanding the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ. By the way, after learning that, think through the lines of uh, there is a fountain sometime and see the beauty of those words and how it sang to him. But he believed. Friends, this passage has been freeing the enslaved and stirring the people of God to worship for 2,000 years. What's wild about this passage is it's not like it's all that poetic or anything. You know, it's not like the Psalms, which are written to be beautiful and have this imagery and illustrations and, and all of these kinds of pictures and such. This, this passage is legal and technical. It's got difficult phrases and big words, propitiation. And yet, and yet this passage has been leading the people of God to fall on their faces and weep in gratitude for 2000 years now. I'll bet the first time you read this passage, you didn't fall on your face weeping. But what happens is after we wrestle through these things and we do the, the sweating work of wrestling through to understand what's, what's being said here in this legal language, justification, what's, what's this? After we come to understand it, what begins to happen is the light shines and we begin to see that this is beautiful. Justification might not have been a beautiful word to you previously, but for the rest of our lives, it should be a word that calls us to get misty-eyed. That through the blood of Christ, we've been brought to be right with God. This is how God has saved the souls of his people and placed us in the heavenly places with Christ. You, you Christian who have come to faith in Christ. Your name is written in the book of life. You're a, a citizen of the city which is to come and justification through the redemption purchased by Christ is how, it's the how. How have you been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son? 
How has the anger of God towards you been averted? And now you are no longer an object of wrath. You're an object of God's mercy. How has that happened? The answer is what Christ has done. This passage tells us about the justification before God that has been made available to us from God. And that phrase from God is a, is a, is a phrase not to miss in this. God, God has made a way for you to be justified, but it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from the earth or any of our ideas. The justification you need has come from the one you need to be reconciled with, from God. If you've not been with us, and as we've been studying through the definition of this word and some of the deep things, here's, here's just the quickest way to say what justification is. Justification is God declaring you not guilty. It's God pardoning you of your sins and counting you as being righteous. Not because you are, but because of the blood of Christ and his righteousness counted as yours. We've seen the Bible show us uh, numerous truths about this. We've worked through seven of them thus far. We've seen that you're not justified by your works, but it's by faith. You can't boast in it because you didn't do it. It's God is the one. We, are, we simply receive it by, by believing on the Lord Jesus. God has legally pardoned you legally removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. And when I say you, we do got to be really clear about who I'm talking to, who this passage is talking to. When I say the you here, understand that this isn't for everyone. I would love it to be for everyone, but that depends on what you do with Christ. Do you trust in him or are you trusting in yourself? We've been seeing the scripture show is for all who receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, who turn to him in a repentant faith that we receive forgiveness of sins and this salvation purchased by Christ. But you do have to understand that if you refuse that, if, if the object of your trust is yourself, and the Bible says you miss what Jesus has purchased. But for you who are in Christ, you're justified. You're pardoned. You're not going to be punished for your sins. But how does that work? Well, we know the basic answer to that. You've been hearing it, you know, many of you since the time you were three years old and maybe you learned to recite the words, Jesus died for sins. How does it happen? Well, let me say it in two ways. First one is the easy way that we're teaching the children back there. Jesus died for sins. It's kind of like whenever you're teaching somebody to drive a car and you tell them the left pedal make car go stop, stop. Okay, it's really basic kind of stuff. But as we grow in Christ, God's wanting us to bring us further than that. God, God's not okay with us staying in the realm of brake, make, stop, stop. God wants to show us how it works. The mechanic needs to know how the brake system works because he has to understand how it all operates. The Christian needs to understand what God has done and how our redemption has been purchased. Never forget, the death of the Son of God is what was required to save your soul. Let us never be content to stay in the realm of the kiddie pool. Swim deep, Christian. And let's look and see what God has. So here's a little bit more of a mouthful way of saying it. 
How has our redemption, how has our justification been accomplished? The reason you are justified is because of the redemption purchased by Christ in his propitiation of sins. Well, that's a mouthful. It might sound complicated. It's not as complicated as it seems. And today we're going to kind of break that little sentence down to make sure we fully understand it and then think about what are the ramifications of this? What are the applications of what this means? So to do that, um, we want to study by looking at two parts. So we're in number eight of your outline there. Two parts, A and B. The first A will be propitiation for sin. And then letter B will be how Jesus' sacrifice is enough to completely save you and for all time. So letter A, propitiation for sins. You see verse 25 say this, this phrase, this, this language, that Jesus was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The word propitiation means to satisfy anger through sacrifice. The word is almost entirely used in reference to deity. But it's important to know that it's not only a Christian word. Uh, even pagan religions would speak of uh, propitiating their gods, their, their idols. Biblically, it is to appease God's justice and wrath, to pacify his fury through sacrifice. And we got to understand the major part of this. And as we look at the way that this is shown, even starting in the book of Genesis, because by the way, it is there, the beginning steps, the, the early foundations of how God explained this progressively are built upon in scripture. We call that biblical theology. Whenever you start at the beginning and see, see something that God just very simply taught, basic idea of sacrifice. And then throughout the rest of the Bible, it's built upon and you learn more and more and more until we come to the New Testament and this very you know, kind of difficult passage that's here, that biblical theology. As you, as you pass through the scriptures and read through this, we see God show early on that the only way that his anger for disobedience can be propitiated is through a sacrifice of blood. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But before any of that's going to make sense to us, we have to understand that God is angry and why he is angry and how angry he is. You know, Jonathan Edwards preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've never given a listen to that, I highly recommend you to give a listen. But one of the things that's odd about that is, is, Modern man completely rejects even the title of the sermon. Modern, modern man rejects even the idea that there is any anger in God. That really the God of modern man's thought is the God of tolerance is just always about embracing things. But we see something very different in the scripture. We see God even from the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis. We see that there is an anger in God. Why is he angry? Why is he so upset? And also, is his anger justified? You know, when the Bible talks about anger for you and I, uh, you've probably learned that anger is not necessarily an evil thing. We are oftentimes in sin when we're angry, but anger in itself is not necessarily sin. The question that the Bible poses when you're angry is, do you have a right to be? Like, is your anger righteous or unrighteous? Is it founded? Is there a legitimate reason to be angry? And then the second question is, is the degree of your anger 
legitimate for the crime. Someone may insult you to your face. It's not evil to be upset. It's not evil to have a, a, a level of anger about that. We often sin by how angry we are. The degree, the level that is there. So what about God? He's angry. And the Bible shows that he is intensely angry. That there's a fury. We're shown in Scripture the fury of God towards sinners, those who resist him, reject him, disobey him. And that includes every single one of us in this room, apart from Christ, is so intense. He is sentencing sinners to an eternity of hell. That's not a joke. That's not a myth. That's not a cartoon. That's not something given to scare. That is something that God is warning the world about. He is sentencing sinners to an eternity of torment. That's anger. Is it justified? He's furious. Is his fury justified? What's going on that he's so angry? Well, you, you've, if you've been with us, the first almost three chapters of this book, we have been looking at our sin and we've seen a number of points about it. One of the really obvious points that was made over and over again is, is proving this point so that no one could boast and excuse themselves. Every soul of mankind has rebelled against him. There's no one who would be able to say, yeah, but that doesn't count for me or I'm not included in that. No, every soul other than the Lord Jesus Christ has rebelled against God and is under this wrath. But there's another point that we saw that is often denied. Sin is a big deal. Many are willing to say, I'm a sinner. But what they mean by that is, nobody's perfect and God knows that. So, hey, no, no sweat. But what we see scriptures show instead, sin, disobedience, rebellion against the rule of God, it really is horrendous. It really is awful we struggle to see just how bad it is because we live in it every day like maggots accustomed to the smell of trash. But the angels in heaven stand aghast and the holy nostrils of God recoil at the stench. Legally, sin is the breaking of God's law and therefore even technically deserves condemnation. But there's more to this than just a technicality. Relationally, Sin is adulterous and we are estranged, separated, broken from the covenant we were made to have with God. Practically, sin ruins you and makes you unfit for the heaven that only righteousness will be allowed in and experientially, listen to me friends, sin is gross. It's vile. Some of the places where God describes how gross sin is are places that will shock you that that kind of language is used by God and used in the Bible. Some of the places in the Bible, if you didn't know that this was from the Bible and someone said it out loud, you might say, watch your mouth around my children. But God's not being sinfully vulgar. He's being truthfully graphic. Sin deserves condemnation. Legally, God in his righteousness has a self-imposed obligation to bring condemnation to it, send it to hell where it deserves. But even the heart of God just hates it. There's a technicality of the law of God that needs to condemn sin. But more than a technicality, God despises and loathes it. It really is awful. And the Bible shows that while God is a God of love and care, he is angry towards evildoers. And man, you're one of them. You're one of them. 
And so am I. Apart from Christ, here's what the Bible says, Ephesians 2, you are an object of wrath. You are a child, children of wrath. The, the primary attitude of God towards those who are resisting him is that of being under his condemnation. We can't understand propitiation until we understand why God's anger needs to be propitiated. That there is an anger of God towards sin. But the text tells us that though God is angry, yet we can be justified. But the big question is, how? What, what God explains in this and dozens upon dozens of other places in scripture is that Jesus's death has propitiated the wrath and anger of the Father. Propitiation is not just a Christian term. It was used by pagan religions amongst the pagans when they believed that one of their gods was angry. They believed that they needed to satisfy him. And so say for instance, a, a region was experiencing a drought. Those who worshiped vain idols like the Egyptians that we find in scripture and such, they would, they would then hold a feast to the God of rain. They would celebrate his name. They would, they would sing songs in his honor. And then they would make a large number of offerings in order to try to appease, to pacify the anger of the God of rain. Maybe we, maybe we ticked him off somehow. We need him to get happy with us again so he'll send the rain and then everything will be okay again. As you read some of the ancient literature like Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey, you see this over and over again. It's how Agamemnon pacified the gods to get the favorable winds to come home. Well, the pagans got most everything wrong, but they did understand the basic concept of propitiation. But here's the way that it works with the living God. God shows us from the beginning that sin deserves death. It's, it's, it's a basic truth you gotta form as part of the foundation of your understanding of the world. So long as you agree with the world that sin is no big deal, all of the Bible is gonna be, it's gonna not make sense to you. Sin deserves death. One, one sin deserves death. That's the just punishment. But what God provided is that even just right outside the Garden of Eden, God made a way for humans to continue to live, for there to be a covering a temporary kind of covering by allowing a substitute to take their place in death. How awful is sin? Here's God's answer. Blood is required for the punishment. Life deserves to be taken for the sinner to be brought to peace, atonement, at one with God again, the, the blood must be spilt, a sacrifice of a lamb, a goat, a calf. God made an arrangement that the sacrifice would count for the sinner. You got to hang on to that language of count. That's really going to become important as we study into the next chapter here. And for thousands of years of human history, however long it was from the Garden of Eden till the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, those who trusted in the Lord, those who believed, they would offer these sacrifices as part of their worship. Abraham, for instance. God had not yet given a great deal of instruction about how to do it. It's just the basic understanding was in the world as a part of the moral law that in order for Abraham to worship God, he was going to need to make blood offerings, sacrifices of a life 
in the stead of his life. Uh, listen, friends, one of the things we've got to understand is those offerings that Abraham made, they did not eternally save his soul. They could do nothing to save him in eternity. He, Abraham was saved by the blood of Christ that from his perspective was still yet future. The blood of Christ reaches backwards into time to count for those who believed on the Lord, even in the Old Testament. So if that's the case, then why did God have him make sacrifices? It preached. It showed. For thousands of years, it cried out this message, man needs atonement to be right with God. Blood must be spilled. What happened at the law of Moses at Sinai is that God gave a formal system for these things. As you read through Leviticus and, and some of these books that explain the ins and the outs, the details, the how-tos, the what-nots, all of these kinds of things, what God did is he gave a, a formal system, no longer just haphazard like Abraham, but now there are priests and those who handle the sacrifices and a certain way in which it was to happen. And I want to tell you this, friends, you understanding Christ's atonement, as you go now and read the book of Leviticus, it means more to us than even it did to the original recipients. Because we understand that every single detail of what was told there has some way that it helps us understand what is happening in atonement, in what Christ has done. You take some things like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was one of those specifics of the Old Covenant. What happened is they would take two lambs and two very different things were done to these lambs. But together they combine a picture of what happens to us in the atonement of Christ. The first lamb, the high priest, in a solemn moment before the people would lay his hands on the head of the lamb and would confess the sins of the nation. And there was this symbolic transferring of guilt to this lamb. This lamb is going to count in the stead of the people. That lamb's throat would then be slit, its blood caught in a basin, that high priest would walk through the holy place with fear and trembling and bells on his feet into the holy of holies where on earth the nearest presence of God dwelt. And there he would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat on top of that Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the throne of God in heaven. And then that other lamb that I told you about would be brought out into the wilderness and set free. God giving this picture that the blood of the sacrifice appeased, pacified, propitiated the wrath of God for the sins of the people. And yet freedom was given even in the midst of this. Day by day in the temple, sacrifices were made. Every single morning began with a sacrifice and every single evening concluded with one. And in between, in all of those daylight hours, worshipers would come with their individual sin offerings, guilt offerings. For a person who had sinned in a way that his conscience was greatly afflicted, he would then bring a sacrifice in order to come and show his remorse and repentance and to come be made right with God. All through the years, there were new moon festivals and different holy days where offerings were made. There was the Passover. The Passover itself, as you think about just the amount of blood, is really staggering. Historians paint the picture for us that on the night of the Passover, as all of the families would gather into Jerusalem, the heads of the household would bring the lamb for the household into this massive courtyard of the temple. Try to picture this scene. 
Hundreds of priests are scattered around the courtyard waiting, flint knives in hand. Tens of thousands of men are standing around holding on to a rope tethered to the, to the lamb. And when that moment of twilight came, the priest would then begin slitting throats. Once the throat was slit, that head of the household would need to quickly rush and bring it back to his household. And there they would prepare it according to the instructions of the Passover. They would roast it in fire, eat it with bitter herbs and all that is instructed there. But think of those priests and think of the scene as you were to maybe just sit on the wall and look in. That priest, one after another, after another. Can you imagine the sounds? Can you imagine the lambs crying out? Can you imagine the smells? Can you imagine the sight of all of that blood? Historians tell us that if you were across the valley on the Mount of Olives and you looked over towards the temple, that as the evening wore on and more gallons of blood were spilled, eventually that blood would seep over the courtyard foundations and begin to drip down the mountain. Do you have a clear picture of the awfulness of sin? How costly. How costly is your soul? What will a man give in exchange for a soul? What would it take to buy it? What God tells us is the millions upon millions of gallons of blood that were shed over the years in that sacrificial system, the accumulated amount could not buy your redemption. But what was God showing? He's showing atonement. He's showing the reality of the cost and worth of your soul and just what it takes for your soul to be purchased from the justice that you deserve. And where the great climax of scripture comes in everything that runs through, including this one of propitiation through the scriptures, is Jesus on the cross, on the cross being counted as if he were sin embodied. Counted as if he were a sinner, though he were righteous being counted as if he were you, Christian, being counted as if he were you, being counted as if your sins and your disobedience to God, what, what, what wrath do you deserve? Look at Christ on the cross. And on the cross, he's bearing the wrath of man and the wrath of God, being counted as sin on our behalf, taking the wrath of God owed to us onto himself. But this is where the redemption part comes in. Because in Christ, justice is satisfied, there's none left for the one who has received Christ. For the one who has received the benefits of what Christ accomplished, there is no more fury, no more wrath, no more anger of God, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there is no double jeopardy with God. You know, in our laws, it is a good thing that we have this law that you cannot be arrested and punished for a crime, pay your penalty, get out, and then be arrested all over again for the exact same crime and punished all over again. That's, that's double punishment. That's, that's unjust. And the same is with God. Once the punishment is executed, it's finished. Righteousness has been accomplished. Jesus has received the punishment that we deserve on the cross. And now there is nothing left to give in this legal arrangement with God of justification. There's a story of a family that was caught in wildfires springing up all around them and their exits were cut off. 
And so these fires that were burning around were eventually going to make their way to them. And so what the father did is he ran out into a, a large open field and he set fire to it himself in a controlled burn. And after it was scorched, he brought his family into the middle because the fire that was burning towards them could not burn up what had already been burned up. You Christian, you are standing on ground that has already been scorched by the wrath of God. The wrath of God came upon Christ and you in him, you are in a place where there is no more wrath to come to you. You are safe. You're safe. Justice has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been spent. We've used the illustration of the bow of God's wrath bent. The arrow of justice unleashed, aimed at your heart. But what Christ has done by the plan and design of the Father, Jesus joyfully, and you will not understand it if you do not see him doing it joyfully. For the joy set before him steps in front of the arrow on your behalf and takes the arrow of justice into himself and the Spirit of God applies that redemption to you. If you could somehow imagine that all of the wrath that you deserve were rendered down to one cup and that cup was set before you in the justice of God. But then across the table sat Christ and all of the cup of blessing that he is owed from his life of obedience was gladly set before him by the Father. Jesus has stood and taken your cup onto himself and he gave you his and he says, drink of my righteousness. The, the robes of Christ's righteousness are wrapped around us. They are not our good deeds, but they are counted as if they are ours. And what we're told is God the Father looks on us as if we had obeyed his law perfectly. Friends, this is a wonder. The Father designed this. Jesus joyfully and delightfully submitted to become and agree to be our substitute. And the Spirit of God applies this before the world was made when not even a molecule of this universe was yet formed. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed to bring this redemption in the covenant of redemption. And now consider a second part in letter B. Jesus' sacrifice is enough to completely save you and for all time. Here's what that means. You know, the false religions of the world, we, we've made the point that they're all somehow works-based. They're all somehow based in you being a good person. And we've also noted that the Christian distortions of the gospel, taking the pure message of the gospel and corrupting it, almost always have a version that is works-based as well. Where what they teach is, here's how you're right with God. You go be good. You go engage in all these rituals, these religious devotions, and you're going to earn points with God or earn merit with God, or there's a big scale that you're trying to tip on your behalf, this kind of thing. But here is, here is perhaps the greatest thing that those distortions get wrong. They fail to see the sufficiency of Christ's work. I mean, we could list off 15 different problems with them and all from the Bible. But maybe the biggest is that they don't believe Jesus' sacrifice is enough. They don't see it as adequate. 
They sort of see it along the lines as Jesus gets you started. Jesus helps you. Jesus puts you on the path and then your good works will eventually make you right or fit for heaven. But it is always this kind of idea that it's not enough. On the cross, Jesus said it is finished. Was he mistaken? Or is his death really all the payment that is necessary for the cleansing of sins? Because the Bible says it's enough. If you have Christ, you can add nothing else to it in order to make you right with God. Christ alone equals righteousness with God. You trying to take Jesus plus your works, plus your religion, plus all this, ends up meaning you lose Christ because you're not actually grabbing onto him. You can only cling to one thing that you ultimately trust in. It is either you or Christ. The Bible says whenever your clutches claim Christ by faith, you get all of him. And that righteousness, that is how you have it. The Bible is again and again arguing to show if you have Christ, you have it all. His death is sufficient. Let me show that to you in just one passage. If you'll leave Romans, flip to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Some of you, I'm sure just the, the language of Hebrews is just echoing in your mind right now. Find Hebrews chapter nine. I'm going to read a little bit of an extended section here, but it's kind of like it's just preaching this sermon for me. Hebrews 9, and if you find verse 11, what happens right before verse 11 is there's some discussion about the things that God designed in the old covenant, the temporary shadows, we're told they were never meant to be eternal. They were never meant to be the thing that saves. They were meant to help us understand the ultimate purpose, understand Christ. Here's the one of the language that, that it uses is they were copies of the true things. That temple on earth was just a copy of the throne room of God in heaven, of what it would be to walk right up to God himself, copies of things on earth. We'll find verse 11 and see the language that's used here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Here's what that means. Jesus didn't walk into the tabernacle or temple on earth and bring his blood. Where did he go? The throne room of God in heaven. The very presence of the Father in heaven, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed in the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jump down to verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, meaning cleansed with blood, as Moses did when the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle was finished. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now, let me show you a little bit more. Hang in there with me. Look at verse 1 in chapter 10. It's still preaching. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Jump down to verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. Why do you sit down? Because you're done. Because you're finished because there's no more work to do, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And then here's the last little part. Look at verse 19 as a therefore then begins. What do we make of this Christian therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ? Here's what he continues to say. Walk in joy, live in obedience, approach your God with boldness as sons and daughters. What's the point? One sacrifice for all time saves to the uttermost and gives you all of it by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is appeased forever. Do you see that every system which tries to tell you that your salvation is based on you, and that comes in many forms, but you make it happen, it is all failing to see the sufficiency of what Christ has done. Here, here, here's another way. Think of those who believe that you can lose your salvation. There are those who believe that you can be justified, be saved, be adopted with God, receive eternal life. I fail to see how it's eternal if you can lose it. But receive these things and then you can fall away and become unsaved. Now we're going we're gonna to do a lot of study on that in chapter 6. It's actually a very deep subject and lots of beautiful truths to it. That we'll see the Bible show that those who are truly justified, you can never lose what God has given you. But there's a lot to look at with it. There's human responsibility. There's all these things we got to study. But to those who believe that you could be born again, awakened by the miracle of God, justified, adopted, forgiven of sins, given eternal life, but then you lose that if you aren't good enough. We could list 15, 20 problems with it biblically. I could show you passage after passage of Jesus saying, ain't nobody taking you out of my hands. Passage after passage would show that, but here's maybe the biggest issue. Once again, it's trying to give man way too much credit. As if it's all on you. As if the cosmos is ordered by you and I. 
Friends, when what you see in Scripture from start to finish, salvation is of the Lord. The language that the Bible uses to say that is nothing short of staggering. Jesus saying things like, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's a lot of theology. God the Father has predestined the people to be saved. He gives those people to Jesus with the instruction, you are to redeem them. Jesus says, I'm saving them. It is happening. I am making it happen. Jesus says, once I have you, there is no way you are being plucked out of my hands. I will raise them up. Start to finish, salvation is of the Lord. What in the world do you think you can do about that? Yes, there's human responsibility, and we're going to talk about all of those things. But aren't you glad, Christian, that in the heavenly realms, it is God from start to finish who saves? God chose. God created this cosmos. The stars, the planets, the galaxies, the quasars, it's all his. He ordered it all. He chose a plan. God ordained that there would come a day that you would hear the gospel and something miraculous would happen. You heard the gospel and the spirit of God breathed life into you. You responded in faith and yeah, yeah, you responded. Just like Lazarus breathed whenever Jesus called him to life. Nobody sings a lot of songs to Lazarus though because his part was so puny that it's not even really a work. Like we sing songs about the power that brought him to life, not about the breathing that took place afterwards. The spirit of God breathed life into you. You responded, you believed, you received the Lord Jesus, you turned, but that's what somebody does when they're brought to life. There's no songs to be sung to you about these things. God brought you to life. And then what the Bible says, even after you've been saved. So, so you respond and God declares from heaven, justified, you're not guilty. You're adopted by God, a legal declaration that makes you his. And then what scripture shows day by day, the Bible shows that if God did not rain down the fresh manna of provision to keep you saved every day, you would wither in an uncanny kind of mystery. Like it's a mystery. Man's responsibility and what God is doing. It blows our minds, but we got to believe what he says in a mystery, the faith you are exerting right now. If you are hearing these words and receiving them and believing them, the faith you are exerting right now did not find its ultimate origin in you. You are being helped right now to believe. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. From start to finish, it is God who saves. When someone asks you, why are you saved? Don't ever say, because I. We respond, because God. God came to me. God sent his son. God drew me to himself, called me by name. God is sustaining my faith at this very moment. All God would have to do is simply stop. And we would spiritually wither. God is supplying everything that you need from start to finish. It is of him. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus and a pinnacle of the work of God. His work to save is the sufficiency of the atonement 
of Christ. It's enough, Christian. Once you embrace Christ, you are not now in a race of trying to then finish appeasing God. He's appeased. You're called righteous. You're looked on as sons and daughters. So now what is the effect? Christian, you're justified. You're justified and you have eternal life. But here's oftentimes what we fail to understand. We oftentimes embrace the fact that we have eternal life, but we start to think that somehow I've got to earn God's love. I've got to earn God's acceptance. Like he saved me, but he still kind of doesn't like me. You ever been there, Christian? Oh, my mind has been tormented with those thoughts. Like I know he loves me. Many Christians are convinced God loves me, but they're not sure God likes them. God accepts you in Christ. As the father runs to the prodigal son in that parable that Jesus told and weeps, weeps, throwing his arms around him, embracing him. Your father delights in you. Jesus gladly and joyfully for your salvation gave himself. The Father rejoices in you. Being called righteous doesn't just mean we're technically given heaven, but God doesn't like us. It means the full embracing of what it means to be sons and daughters of God is ours in Christ. Men of God, we sometimes think that real religion and and true theology means I need to slump my shoulders and hate myself. Because I know that sin is a big deal. If sin's a big deal, then I need to hate myself. Put your shoulders back, son of God. The father has propitiated his anger in Christ. You women of God, do not believe the lies of your enemy who wants to make you think that real piety means you'll be disgusted with yourself. There is such a thing as grieving over sin. There is such a thing as recognizing we've disappointed God in a moment, but that is not the whole of his attitude towards you. Women of God, walk with your heads held high, knowing you are daughters of the king who loves you and bought you. You are the bride of Christ and brought to himself. Of course, there's an ungodly way these things could be taken, prideful and such, but there's a difference between recognizing and taking sin seriously and hating yourselves and not believing what the Bible says about your standing with him. When God saves you and sets you in a right place, you are in a right place in his affections as well as the legal standing with God. One of the ways that we get the atonement wrong as Christians is failing to believe all of the effects that Jesus bought. We often believe Jesus gives us eternal life, but fail to see that he has satisfied the heart of God towards us. Christian, does guilt from your past plague you and give you misery? The Bible shows that your enemy is your accuser. One of the ways he wants to try to incapacitate you is with guilt that just disables you. When he brings those thoughts to your mind, there is one part you can say, I I agree, what I have done is more awful than I have ever known. But this is the part where you speak the gospel to yourself and to the hot breath of your enemy. My Savior propitiated the anger of my Father. There is no more condemnation 
no more wrath, no more justice, no more fury, and no more disgust. If you are in Christ, you are delighted in. Blossom in that. Rejoice in that. Let that embolden your faith. The Bible says the righteous are bold as lions. Think about what that means. That's not, that's not slumping along, hating myself. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. It is walking knowing I'm a son of God, emboldened by the fact I know where I stand because my Savior bled. And then later in Romans, we'll carry it on. Not only did he bleed and he died, but he's alive. We shall be saved by his life. Jesus is the one who died for you. He has brought you to the Father. And when he brings you to the Father, he brings you all the way. Rejoice in what you have, Christian. Walk in the peace, knowing you have peace legally. Also walk in peace in your conscience, knowing that God has set you free in Christ. To you who are on the outside of that, to you who have not yet embraced Christ, you need to understand you are on the outside of something looking in at something very beautiful that is not yours yet. Embrace it. In the silence of your heart, cry out to God even right now. You can be saved in this moment if you will believe on the Lord Jesus and receive him. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, our God, we are overwhelmed, Lord when we think of what you have done. The greatest display of your glory is what you've done in Christ. There we see the display of all of your perfections. Your justice is perfect. Your wrath is perfect. But so is your love. Your mercy is perfect. Your righteousness is perfect. We see it all on display in what we have in Christ. Oh God, help our hearts to understand Oh God, help our hearts to rejoice in the redemption we have in Christ. Help us, God, that we will no longer live on believing you are in disgust with us, oh God, but to receive the forgiveness and walk in the peace and joy of that forgiveness. God, as we celebrate a time of fellowship and a meal together, please bless Bless our time of conversation. Bless our time of, of, of talking with one another that will be encouragements to one another. Thank you for providing food for us in times of feasting and enjoyment. We love you, O Lord, our God. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled Justified Part 4. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.